You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Good morning, church family. My name is Ryan Majors, and I serve on the Connections team here. Today we'll be reading Genesis chapter 23, verses 1 through 20. Please open your Bibles with me. If you do not have one, there is one underneath the seat in front of you. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land, and he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me, Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, of all who went in at the gate of his city. No, my lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of your sons, of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will, hear me, I give the price of the field. Accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field, the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area were made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as a property for a burying place by the Hittites. This is the word of the Lord. Well, thanks, Ryan. Good morning, everybody. Good seeing y'all here. Um, if you know anything about me and my story, I um, was so privileged to have the grandmother and grandpa that I had. Uh, my grandpa passed away about 10 years ago and uh, died of a stroke. And while we were in the hospital just a couple days before he passed, we were at that, at that point where all of us were telling him goodbye. And so uh, a big Catholic family was in the room and I'll never forget my grandmother um, goes up to him and she put her hands on his face and uh, she kissed him and she looked at him and she said, 
uh, I will love you forever, Billy Durick. And uh, that's the phrase that stuck with me. And the reason why that phrase is significant is because uh, everybody, at least in my life or that I had seen, knew him as grandpa or Bill or dad or coach uh, something along those lines. He was a football coach forever in, uh, in Catholic schools in Dallas. He taught driver's ed to like, tons of people. But in that moment, um, my grandma called him Billy. And she called him a name that was her name for him. And uh, it's a name that must have preceded me and any story, any perspective that I had, probably a name that she started calling him in the early 50s when they met. Uh, but to her in that moment, in that lifetime, as she's kissing her husband goodbye, I can't imagine that she's thinking, that she's not thinking about a time when they were a lot younger and all the stories, all the highs and lows of their beautiful life, some that I know, most of which I probably don't. And uh, I was really honored to be able to be part of the process of honoring my grandpa, spoke at his funeral uh, down to the very end when we buried him about two miles southwest of here as the crow flies right by Bachman Lake, right there where the Southwest Airlines planes descend before they land at Love Field. And uh, you go, Matt, that's a really great story. What in the world does that have to do with Genesis? Um, well, here's what it has to do with Genesis. I uh, was very privileged to see my grandmother weep over the loss of her husband, the man she loved, and for her to celebrate his life and to care all the way to the end to bury him in the rightful place in the shadow of Northwest Dallas, a place that he loved for the last 60 years of his life. And uh, I got to see my grandmother do that. And in today's passage, we actually get to see the other side of that. We get to see Abraham do the very thing for Sarah, uh, weep at her funeral and care very much, very intently on her final place of rest that is consistent with God's promise to them. And so I think if we drill into this passage this morning, there's a good bit for us to see. So let's walk through it together. Genesis 23, starting in verse 1. <clears throat> Sarah lived 127 years, and these were the years of the life of Sarah, 127 years. We have to do a little uh, piecing together how old uh, she is. Well, the text tells us how old she is, but we know this. It's 37 years since Isaac was born, so she now has a 37-year-old son, and 62 years since they had been in Canaan. So she is a seasoned pro now or was at least 62 years living in this promised land. That's the backdrop for her. Verse two, <clears throat> and Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her, to mourn and to weep for her. Okay, I am putting them together at least 110 years. Well, where do I get that number? Okay, in the, in the ancient Near East, the likelihood of Abraham and Sarah getting married very young was very high. So 17 was probably the oldest she would have been when she married 
Abraham. She was probably a lot younger when they got married. Together for at least 110 years. 110 years. Anybody in here celebrating a 110th year wedding anniversary? Let me know. I'd love to meet you. Call the Guinness Book of World Records. Nobody. Okay. Yeah. 110 years as he's mourning and weeping for her. And I can't imagine that he's not in the place that my grandma was, where he's just thinking about their story and their lives, thinking about leaving Ur together because God told them to, probably thinking about some of his low points, the two times he tried to pawn her off as his sister to Pharaoh and Abimelech. I'm sure he's thinking about their longing for decades and decades as a child and the significance of that. Guys, having children today in 2023 is highly significant, but it's significant in uh, the framework of an individualistic Western society. And so having kids is kind of the next marker on the chapter in the fulfillment of our lives. In an ancient Near Eastern tradition, having children was literally your identity. It's what you had, it's who you were, it was your very lifeline. And for decades and decades and decades, as we've talked about in this series, they longed for a child that they didn't have, and I can't imagine he's not thinking about that Maybe Abraham's thinking about her idea and his complicity to manufacture the promise through Ishmael. Maybe he's thinking about the craziness of hanging on to this promise that God's gonna bless them with a land and child. Maybe thinking about all the, uh, all the living out of tents as nomads. Maybe their strange encounter with this priest king, Melchizedek, who's showing them that something or someone beyond them is leading them. Maybe he's thinking about God's gentle rebuke of Sarah when she laughed at him. The birth of Isaac when they finally held their baby boy. Finally. Years later, the utter anxiety of what God might have been asking them to do and sacrificing their baby boy. Abraham is weeping at his wife's funeral, his beloved, because Abraham and Sarah had lived. And uh, he wasn't a perfect dude, no doubt about that, they made some uh, key, he made some keystone mistakes, real big mistakes. But he did love her, the text is clear, and he weeps and mourns for his beloved, the one who was by his side, who he had lived with, who had endured, who had hung on to the promises of God herself. And he's looking at her at her funeral and remembering that this is his helper, that this is his soulmate, the one in whom his heart loved, the mother of his child, his beloved, and he weeps at her loss, the loss of her life. And so as a noble husband, his next step, verse three, is to bury her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. I'm sure you woke up this morning and the first thing you thought about is who are the Hittites? You had to. I know it was top of mind. Um, there's a little bit of question about who they are, but most people think these are the sons of Heth, Noah's grandchildren, uh, inhabitants of Canaan, the land of promise. And so that's who Abraham is talking with. And so Abraham takes a very humble posture and says, I, I acknowledge I am not of you. I acknowledge this land is presently yours. And so I'm asking you as a sojourner here, may I make a grave to bury my beloved? Their response, verse five. The Hittites answered Abraham, hear us, my Lord, 
You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choice in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. They say, of course you can bury her. You're a prince of God. And they're not the first to acknowledge this special anointing from a man who's not from Canaan, but who clearly cares deeply about this place. And their response is grace. You can have the best tomb. It's yours. Just tell us which one you want. And then the rest of the passage, verse 7 through 20, is about negotiation, purchase, and settling. So verse 7, and Abraham rose and he bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, if you're willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns at the end of the field for the full price. Let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. And so Abraham insists on paying full price. He's not trying to deal. He's like, I want that land. I don't want to pay for it. Let's look at Ephron's response. Verse 10, he was sitting among the Hittites and Ephron, the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, everyone at the city gate. And he says, no, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. You bury your dead. So Ephron says, nope, I'll give it to you. And then Abe comes back, verse 12, and says, nope, nope. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, but if you will hear, if you will hear me, I give you the price of the field. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. So Abraham insists, no, I really actually want to buy it. I want to buy it and I want to pay full price. So verse 14 and 15, Ephron answers Abraham, my Lord, listen to me, a piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is it between you and me? Bury your dead. So 400 shekels of silver is the price. Uh, commentators go back and forth on it. Was this kind of a, for, a formality for Ephron to actually get what he wanted for the land, which curious, curiously enough was not a deal. Like a Dallas house right now in the housing market, you ain't gonna get a deal. And uh, this wasn't much of a deal either. 400 shekels of silver is about a 100 pounds of silver that he, verse 16 Weighs out. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So this is a costly amount of money, 100 pounds of silver that he's paying. Now verses 17 through 20 are significant. So the fields of Ephron, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went to the gate of the city. And then after this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field in the land of Canaan. And the field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. What do we need to see in here? Exactly this. Abraham buries Sarah exactly where he wants in the land that he purchased that is rightfully his, in the land of promise, the first legal purchased in the promised land for God's people. 
What are we supposed to draw from this text? Three things I think we see. One, an enduring woman. Secondly, an enduring marriage. Lastly, an enduring faith. Let's start with an enduring woman. Number one, Sarah is remarkable. She's a remarkable gal. She really is. Uh, She follows her husband to a really strange place, most likely endures the stigma that comes from that because trust me, anyone who ever did anything bold got criticized for it. Am I the only one? Okay. Um, She fights to believe the promises of God. She's barren until an heir finally comes at 90 years old, 90. Amidst wrestling with Abraham, God, and her own doubts, she hangs on, she persists. What a woman of faith. And Hebrews 11 remembers her. Verse 11 and 12 says this, by faith, Sarah received power to conceive even when she was past the age, key in on the next verse, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man in him as good as dead were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven and as many the innumerable grains of sand by the the seashore. The Bible remembers Sarah as a remarkable woman of faith. Just like my grandma just like many women that you and I know. And if you know a Sarah, if you have a Sarah in your life, if there is a matriarch, if you will, who's had the kind of impact through her life that Sarah has had on us or that maybe my grandma has had on me, I hope that she knows what she means to you. Sarah is an enduring woman. But it's not just an enduring woman. We see an enduring marriage. Here's what I mean. Abraham gets most of the publicity, let's be honest. But without Sarah, there's no promise. It's a non-starter. There's no one by his side. There's no mother to Isaac. It It does take two people for that sort of thing to happen, right? And so there's no promise without mom. And she's more than mom. She is a partner to him. And here's what I love. Their marriage was not a modern marriage at all. It was not a mod, it was not a, they didn't have a 2023 type of marriage. What do I mean by that? Well, the modern marriage basically asked this question, what do I get for myself? But the biblical picture of marriage says, what do I give for another's joy? How can I live to be a comfort for this person? How can I be faithful to my vow, even though it might and probably will cost me significantly? And so Abraham and Sarah were not very modern in their approach to marriage. And what I'm saying, what I'm not saying is that there aren't biblical reasons to end a marriage. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that Abraham and Sarah did not embody the 21st century virtues of a transactional, self-fulfilling, and self-actualizing partnership. Their commitment was greater than their feelings. It was greater than what would benefit themselves personally. Their commitment was to God and to one another. And so they endured many hard days until the very end. And I remember, speaking of a modern temptation, I'm not trying to speak down to you. I remember and can feel this temptation in my own life because I remember thinking about my future wife when I was single um, and really, if you, if you cut me open, what I wanted her to be was this perfect complement to all of my weaknesses and all of my insecurities. And uh, I dated a gal who's now my wife, who I 
if you know my story, broke up with three times while we were in college as I was working through this kind of self-actualization myself. Three times. My friends still to this day remind me that I'm the biggest idiot that they've ever met in their entire life. And I'm just like, do, do you mean I was the biggest idiot or I am the biggest idiot? And they're just like, no comment. But, um, but anyway, um, I remember putting, and, and even still today in, in certain temptations, putting this ridiculous weight on a future spouse to be, or on a current spouse, to be everything that I need them to be, need them to be. All of my insecurities, all of my weaknesses, that if this person can make up for that, then I'll be okay. I know that's the modern temptation. And here's what I would tell you. The hole in your heart is only big enough for God to fill and that there is no single person on earth, even if you manufactured them perfectly to your liking, that would actually satisfy the longing that you have in your soul. The longing that you have in your soul is the mystery of Christ. He is the one, God is the one who can actually heal the brokenness, the insecurity, the pain, not your spouse. And so if you're a present spouse and you're putting that burden on your spouse or you're longing for a future spouse and you're seeing your life through that prism of this person being more for you than what the Bible says then there's an opportunity to correct that. There's an opportunity to reorient, to, to adjust, and to go, what if instead of viewing this person as some kind of de facto God who's only going to crush me by, by unmet expectations, I actually see them as part of a commitment, a covenant, and God's strategic plan to be a kind of spiritual sandpaper on my life to get me ready to meet Jesus because that's the picture of marriage. It is not what do I get, it's what I give. And it's not a feelings first commitment, it's an action first commitment. And when actions go first, feelings follow. Your feelings follow your commitments. Be very suspicious of how you feel. Be very, very committed to what God says about marriage. And what he says is that marriage cannot, cannot save you. Your future spouse, your current spouse cannot save you. They weren't designed to do so. You're putting entirely too much weight on them. And if you want a little bit more insight along the way, I know in this kind of in-loveness longing that's perpetuated all throughout our culture, I love first dates. I love first impressions. I love the thought of meeting the person that you're going to be with forever, that's all great. But if, if, if you really want to thrill, like if you really, if you really want to thrill, let me, let me tell you about a thrill. Uh, here, here's a thrill, okay? Try being married to someone for 15 years, knowing them for 20 years, and because of Jesus, and because Jesus transforming your lives together, being crazy about them. Because I'm describing myself I'm absolutely crazy about my wife. God has given me eyes for her in a way I never thought I would have. I, and, and if you want to, if you want a fling, if you want more than a fling, if you want a thrill, if you want an utter thrill, look at your wife of 15 years who you've known for 20 years and go, hey, you know what? By God's grace, we might just make it. 
We might be like grandma telling grandpa goodbye. We might be like Abraham blessing Sarah. We might get through this because of God. Because of our commitment, first of all, his commitment to us, our response in kind, and in light of that, our commitment to one another amidst many hard days. And Abraham and Sarah endured because of a fundamental commitment to God, not to their feelings. And that should be true of us too. The last thing you see is an enduring faith. Hebrews says this about their faith and many others. It says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. And if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared for them a city. You see, God called Sarah and Abraham to something risky and grand, and amidst many setbacks, they put their yes on the table, they left their homeland and their comfort, and they believed God together. And that is because faith, true faith, is ultimately battle-tested. What do I mean? When you think about setbacks in your life, in my life, here's what we know. Faith doesn't always originate in suffering, but suffering does have a funny way of showing us what we actually believe. And as we hang on to God through suffering, we realize we're stronger on the other end. And at the end of Abraham and Sarah's life, you see two people who were steeled by their suffering. And what I'm saying is that if you, and, and praise God for the good seasons. Don't go looking for the bad seasons, okay? There's enough, they're always around the corner. If you're in a good season, celebrate it for all it is. That's okay. It's okay to be okay. Celebrate a good season. But what I'm telling you is that faith is not ultimately actualized and strengthened until it has to endure through something hard. And the reason why that is, is that if you only have faith in good seasons, your faith is ultimately in yourself and in your circumstances being okay. But when your circumstances get rattled and you lose your bearings and you find the voice of the shepherd as your true north, even though it's disoriented, you realize on the other side, God brought you through something that you would not have chosen that has made you more of who you can actually be in Christ. And Abraham and Sarah lived that. Let's be honest, they got a glimpse, like they knew that God was at work, but they had a fractional view of what God was actually doing. They didn't know, they did not know what we know now. And so as a final signpost of their enduring faith, Abraham plants Sarah in a grave that he purchased in a land that he believes he will possess one day and in view of a God that he loves. This is the same place that they will place their children and their grandchildren, future patriarchs and matriarchs. And it's a grave that Israel will find like another tamarisk tree hundreds of years later when Moses leads them back finally to this land. 
they'll find not just a tamarisk tree, but the graves of the folks who went before them in faith. But the sermon doesn't end here. It doesn't, it can't, it can't. In Abraham, we see a husband who weeps over the death of his beloved bride, who cares deeply to provide a final resting place that is consistent with God's promise to them. Does that, my friends, beloved church, remind you of anybody else? Anybody? Shay alluded to this last week. In John 8, Jesus tells us that Abraham rejoiced when he saw Jesus's day. He saw it and he was glad for it. What do I mean? I mean this, that ultimately in Jesus, we see the greater Abraham. In Jesus, we have a husband who weeps over death and also cares deeply about our final place of rest. What do I mean? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11 that we are betrothed to one husband as the church. Our husband is Christ. What does Jesus of this husband, how does Jesus respond to funerals? What is Jesus's disposition like at a funeral? Is it like Abraham's? We actually know exactly what his disposition is like. In John 11, at the death of Lazarus, John eleven thirty two, 32, it says this. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Verse 34, he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. He wept. Of course he wept. Of course he wept. Why? Because he was there in the beginning. He was there in the formation. He's the original architect of the good world that God made. And he knows that death and suffering is not the world that he created for us. He knows that. He saw its purpose and its design. So of course he wept. What, is, what does he weep over? Why does he weep? What, what breaks his heart? Brokenness, sin, the curse, the things that we see and the things that we don't see, the bridegroom's heart breaks too over death and darkness. It breaks. But Jesus doesn't just weep at a funeral. He cares deeply also about our final place of rest. What do I mean? Paul tells us this in Romans chapter six. He says, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So you're going, Matt, are you saying that Jesus cares where we're buried? Yes, he cares where we're buried. Not so much geographically, but positionally. What do I mean? I mean this, that in the gospel, you have Jesus leaving perfection and coming into brokenness and darkness and despair and saying, hey, if you want to do something about that, if you want to bring the worst of the world, if, if you want to leave all of that, my heart is to take it with me into the ground. In the same way that Abraham saw Sarah's life, the whole of it in their life together, the same way that my grandmother wept over my grandpa and their life together, Jesus, the husband to the church, sees our past and our present and our future. And what he says is, I want to bring you with me into the ground. I want the old you, your old self, to be dead and gone. 
I want to do away with the curse and with death and with darkness. I want to bring it into the ground. Yes, he cares a great deal about where we are buried, that we are buried positionally by faith with him. Because when the old self is buried with Christ, what that means is that whatever, whatever besetting sin that used to plague us doesn't have to plague us anymore. That whatever condemnation or shame we hear from our past doesn't have the final word. The old self is dead. We've been crucified with Christ. As he was crucified, we can experience our own crucifixion with him. And so he cares about the resting place of our old man in the ground, dead, buried with him. But he doesn't just care about the resting place of our old man. He cares about the resting place of us as a new creation. That's why we're united with him. If we're united with him in a death like his, we're united with him in a resurrection like his. That's the very picture that we see in baptism. I'm pointing to a baptismal that's not even here. What does it mean to be united with him in newness of life as a new creation? It means that we come out of those waters figuratively, uh, figuratively and we are transforming. We are different. We are new. We are new creatures with a new identity. We are not who we were. We are loved. We are loved. We are eternally spoken for. We are loved. And just like Abraham purchases a costly grave for his beloved wife, Jesus purchases the most costly grave for us by giving his life in our place and looking at the whole of our lives and going, here's this invitation or this reminder, let's go down in the grave and let's bury it and let's come out because he cares a great deal about our final resting place, that we would be with him. Jesus is the only husband who can do more than weep at funerals. He can also speak the final word about our past and our future. And this was the better country. This was the heavenly place of rest that Abraham and Sarah were ultimately longing for. And Abraham and Sarah rejoiced to see that day. I hope we do too. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. And I pray that as we um, sit under the promise of the gospel, I pray that we would know that you are the ultimate fulfillment of a husband who weeps over brokenness, who sees our past, our present, our future, and who weeps at hard circumstances, who is with us through all of them, and who considers it joy to love us in the midst of that. And God, we ask that um, we would see you, Jesus, not only as one who weeps with us, but as one who cares a great deal about our final resting place, just like Abraham did with Sarah, that we would see our old selves as dead, as buried, reckoned dead, crucified with Christ, and our new selves is transforming, is altogether different. And I pray by the, by the power of the Holy Spirit that you would strengthen us because we need your grace, your mercy, your help. We ask that your Holy Spirit would do a profound work of healing, that whatever you need to say to us, that we would hear and we would trust you. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. 
A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be a part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15, and 4 p.m., and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.